when Johnny Comes Wrecking Home is the song that's opening episode 220 of Monster Kid Radio. The band is The Ape Men. It's from their album Seven Plus Inches of Love. You can find them online at their website at the-apemen.com or follow the link in the show notes over at our website, which is monsterkidradio.net. Welcome to the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show and our continuing coverage of the 1970s film Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Now, a couple of days ago in episode 219, I was joined by returning guest and one of my podcasting partners, Scott Morris, to talk about the second film in the Planet of the Apes franchise. Longtime listeners know that I've never seen the Planet of the Apes movies before sitting down to cover these films with Scott, and we are chronicling my journey through these films with Scott because he's a huge fan of these films. As I mentioned in episode 219, Monster Kid Radio is approaching the films as if you've already seen them, that I'm the one who had never seen the movies prior to watching them for this recording. So, it's pretty spoiler-heavy, and if you thought 219 was spoilery, 220, we pretty much reveal everything about the film. Every twist and turn and the ending, yeah, we lay it out bare for us to discuss. So if you haven't seen the film, well... I highly recommend it. Maybe you can call this a spoiler. I loved the hell out of the film. So go watch it if you haven't seen it. Then come back for the rest of our conversation about Planet of the Apes with Scott. Also, I have a little bit of feedback to go over in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. And you know what? Why don't I just go ahead and read that email now? This comes from Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. Hey, Derek, I enjoyed your two-part talk with Wayne W. Johnson. He's referring to a couple of episodes recently in which I interviewed Wayne. He was an actor in the new release, Tales of Dracula, but he also appears in a Star Trek fan series, and that's where Chris's email goes. All of that Star Trek talk got me thinking, he says. You should do a Monsters of Star Trek episode. As a kid, I remember finding a beat-up copy of a book by that same title with the Gorn on the cover. I checked that book out again and again, and years later, found a copy of it with the Mugato on the cover this time. I know many of the creatures on Trek turned out to be not so monstrous after all, like the Horda, but it would be neat to hear you discuss them on the show. Keep up the great work as always, Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. I have responded to Chris and told him I think this is an excellent idea for an episode, and I'm talking to Chris about having him come on the show to discuss that topic. That should happen sometime this year if we can make our schedules line up. I know he and his wife, Cindy, are busy with the Supermates podcast, but if we can find some time that works for us, yeah, we'll cover the monsters of Star Trek. No problem. So let's go from the Star Trek franchise to the Planet of the Apes franchise with Scott Morris and our continued discussion of Beneath the Planet of the Apes right after this. of a great city for the last desperate refuge of millions underground. The incredible, monstrous H-Man strikes terror to every heart, disintegrates everyone it touches. It kills, but can't be killed. The most incredible man you never saw. Deadly byproduct of the H-Bomb blasts, dooming mankind to oblivion. We are facing a situation which cannot be minimized. Complete extermination. Did you start yet? Yes. Masada went into the sewer. Where? Right there. (laughs) 
a great city fight back. Comage operations. To stop the deadliest killer the world has yet encountered. Are you a geek looking for love? Do you long to find discussion on that special comic, TV episode, movie, or toy that's just right for you? Then why not try Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Chris and Cindy Franklin can match you with that certain something to satisfy your genre-related longings, no matter the subject. Superheroes. But Robin's like, that was really nice of you, Batman. He's like, I had the room loaded with kryptonite. I can turn it on at any moment. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's, you're talking about... Now, think about this. It's an apartment building owned by Batman. Do you not think that Batman doesn't have their place booked? Sci-fi. I don't know. You talk about being a sex symbol and stuff like that. I mean, I know a lot of girls thought, you know, William Shatner was it. But I had a, the biggest crush on George Takai. I, 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 I did. I thought, you know... Sorry about that. Horror. And then when we see the Wolfman for the first time, he's in, I don't know, we don't a know. A long sleeve shirt, shirt and a dark pair of pants. Pants with a belt. With a, with belt. a belt. That's right. <laughs> and his shirt's buttoned up all the way, too. Yeah, yeah. And his so, arms. So after he changes into this ferocious beast who can't talk and doesn't seem to be able to think beyond just attacking things. He, he has lots of dexterity. He went through his closet and, ah, you know, <laughs> I like this outfit better. Action figures. I actually had all the figures and all the accessories up to a certain point. I really, literally did collect them all. You know, including Shira. I was going to get to that, but nah. Chris and Cindy have found their own happiness through discussions like this. I think you could be friends with him. I could be down with this version of the ultra humanoid. You can be friends with the dude who put his brain inside a mutated albino ape. I married you! <laughs> oh! If you're tired of searching for geek love, then sign up with Supermates for free at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. Wowee! Do you have trouble seeing ghosts? Of course you do. Unless you have these special ghost viewers. Get them at the theater free so you can see the ghosts in the new movie, 13 Ghosts. My name's Charlie Herbert. I'm not a ghost, but I do appear in this picture. That's telling them, Charlie. The new ghost viewer is the big new movie thrill you kids and your family will really scream at when you see 13 ghosts come to life in color. The fire ghost. The ghost lion. The monster ghost. And all the others you'll see through the ghost viewer giving you at the theater. Thirteen ghosts. See Thirteen Ghosts, a wonderful movie for the whole family. A planet where apes evolved from men? There's got to be an answer. Don't look for it, Kayla. You may not like what you find. Damn you! The year, 3,955. Charlton Heston as Taylor, a 20th century astronaut. Space wrecked in the incredible future. Linda Harrison as Nova, a savage beauty from the enslaved and voiceless human race. They are marked for target practice. James Franciscus as astronaut Brent on a reckless mission to rescue Taylor, trapped by the swaggering, brutal master race of apes who dominate the Earth. A planet shattered by the atomic war of a distant, forgotten past. Where are you going? Into the Forbidden Zone. 
Someone or something has outwitted the intelligence of the guerrillas. Oh, invade! Invade! Face the terrifying dangers of the Forbidden Zone with them. Engulfing you in the shattering experiences that await beneath the planet of the apes. Well, there's an intelligence working in this place. They know we're here. We are determined to know what the apes want. War or peace? The super-intelligent mutants. Are they human or something else? In their church, an unspeakable god. Doomsday bomb. Behind their faces, an unbearable secret. We don't kill our enemies. We get our enemies to kill each other. The irresistible war machine of the guerrilla army versus the devastating secret mind weapons of the subterranean mutants in civilization's final battle to answer the ultimate question. Can a planet long endure half human and half ape? Is it the beginning or the end? Is it Thursday yet? It's Thursday. Let's do it. <laughs> the mutants. The mutants. What? <laughs> What? And the uh, destroyed New York. And not just the destroyed New York, but they, they based a good chunk of that set on a real world location. It wasn't just, let's create a random post-apocalyptic New York. It's, you see this cathedral here? Let's recreate that. Yeah, you see the stock exchange. You see Radio City Music Hall. You see the public library. Yeah. The Queensboro Station subway station. It's pretty impressive for a movie that had its budget basically cut in half they pulled out quite a bit of stops here if not all of them to really give us a, a very interesting look at a post-apocalyptic future i dug it a lot now i love the production design of the ape town but this was pretty cool yeah this uh, this underground destroyed new york was really well done for especially when you learn how they did it in that documentary, they talk about they sent someone to New York to take pictures of Radio City Music Hall, the cathedral, the stock exchange and everything. They brought them back in, developed the pictures, took an, like an X-Acto knife and cut out the parts they wanted and then distressed them and then used them in matte paintings. See, that's the movie magic that I'm drawn to. I love that stuff. Today it'd be all CG. And I know CG works in a lot of cases, but that's just cool. So far, you won't. You just see the underground because you're seeing uh, Brent and Nova walk through this. When they escaped from the apes, the gorillas, they found this cavern that they got into. The first thing you see is this subway tile. So you, Brent is immediately like, something's not right here. And then he un uncovers a, a pay telephone. Yeah. And then the sign that says Queensboro, Queensboro Station. And he kind of realizes where he is because he, he's realizing, I used to live here. This is where I'm from. You know, we were talking earlier about how this has a lot of moments that are kind of a rehash or a remake of the first film. I appreciate that Brent learned that he's on Earth before the end of the movie, before the final reel. And I did like the way this was done. Because in the first film, Heston gets off the horse and, damn you, you did, you know. Yep. This is a lot more internal. And I like the way Franciscus expresses Brent's frustration and realization that, holy crap, mm -hmm. this is what it's a very different kind of performance. And, and the way that he reacts to the situation, I really appreciate it. I love there's a scene where he is looking at Nova and she's asleep and he says something along the lines of, are you like us before we learn to talk? Yeah. And then he starts. But what good did all that talking do? All the talking around all the tables, did it ever solve anything? Mm hmm. I just, I love that. And supposedly Franciscus wrote a lot of those lines because his character was mostly just action. And he got together with the director, Ted Post and Paul Dean and said, I want to expand my character. What can we do? And he helped develop that part of the character in these lines. I thought it was great. I appreciated it. It gave me some chills. I'll, I'll admit it gave me a few, a few chills here and there. It was different enough from Planet of the Apes that I feel like at this point he was no longer Charlton Heston left in the dryer too long. <laughs> you know, I just, I really appreciated that and I really enjoyed it. But then he starts hearing this otherworldly humming vibration sound. So I'm watching this on Blu-ray last night after my wife goes to sleep and the humming starts 
and I die for the remote control because it eventually gets so loud and uncomfortable. One of my cats is looking at the TV like, what the hell is going on? I'm afraid Brenda's going to wake up in the other room. But yeah. it, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but Brent goes off to investigate, and this is where you see a lot of the scenes as he's walking by Radio City Music Hall, mm-hmm. Stock Exchange and everything, and ends up in front of this cathedral, which is all redressed scenes from Hello, Dolly. Seriously? Seriously, yes. That whole interior part of the cathedral <laughs> were stages built for Hello, Dolly originally. That's amazing. I mean, that's cost-cutting, but that's amazing. Yep. But he gets there, walks up to this fountain, tastes a little bit of the water. The water's obviously nasty because he spits it back out. Right. He and Nova walk towards the doors of the cathedral, and as they get close to it, the fountain starts running again. So he immediately goes back over and starts drinking some of the water, and Nova starts to drink, and then Brent starts having this episode. He starts shaking and grabbing at his head, and something's not right with him, and he starts to drown Nova. Uh, why, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is happening here? Is the water poisoned? Uh, you know, first time I saw this, what exactly is going on here? Mm-hmm. He ends up breaking whatever is controlling him at this point and doesn't kill Nova. But then he walks back up to the doors and goes in the cathedral and the door closes behind him. And so he's by himself and he sees somebody up on the stage praying to a missile, which is like, <laughs> what is going on now? <laughs> yeah, I, this, like I said, I've intentionally avoided spoilers. I did not watch the feature length documentary. I'm not reading ahead or watching movies ahead. I had no idea that they were going to come across another person. I am assuming a human at this. You know, I don't think I thought it was another ape or whatever. Praying out loud, revealing his true self or inner self to a missile. Yep. And calling it his God. I had no idea that was going to happen. I was like, well, what? (laughs) Two other guys then restrain Brent and he's taken to another part of the cathedral where it looks like he's standing on a giant chessboard. I liked that. I did too. It's a nice visual. There's like five different humans standing up there, including the actor who played King Tut in the 66 Batman TV show is one of them. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I knew he looked familiar. (laughs) Oh, my God. He's dope. (laughs) Nice. But But they're all standing up there staring at him. And then you hear this bing sound when one of them kind of closes their eyes in this bing sound and Brent answers a question. See, this was smart. I liked this a lot. Oh, I, I did think, too. Again, if this movie was made today, you'd hear the voiceover. It might have like an echo effect like, oh, I'm talking to you three. Brent. Nope, none of that. All you're getting is Brent's side of the conversation. And it's enough of a conversation to know what's going on. So it's smartly written as well. Really enjoyed this scene a lot. And I like the configuration of the humans here. Uh, You've got, what, three white guys, a white girl, and a black guy? Yep. So it's not just a bunch of whitey hanging out in the cave, you know? So I like that, too. They're interrogating Brent, Mm -hmm. wanting to know who he is, where he's from, why he's here, is Nova, and what does she know? They basically show him that they can put pain in his mind because the African-American one, he kind of takes a couple steps forward and he must be more powerful than the other ones because he can cause Brent to be in tons of pain. This whole time, none of them has said anything. Not a word. It's scary. Yeah. Spooky. And then once they find out that he's been to Ape City, they all start asking him questions roughly at the same time. Cameras flashing back before between all of them. They're all, you hear the, the bing noise And Brent is just, he's going insane because he's clawing at his face. He's like, I can't answer all of you one at a time, one at a time. It's just, it's right. And then they start talking. So Brent can better comprehend and and talk. But yes, I loved that whole scene where they're not talking and just, you're just hearing everything from Brent's side of the conversation. It was masterfully done. It's very well done. And I mean, again, spooky. 
you really don't know what's happening here. There's not a familiar touchstone. The only touchstone you have here is Brent's reaction. What is going on here? I mean, at least when they're dealing with the apes, they're talking, you know, they're acting like modern day humans, whatever. But here, just what? And, you know, by all rights, these guys should be on Brent's side. They're humans, right? Right. They should be familiar. They should be, hey, it's another one of us. Great. No. This is a terrifying scene. Well, I think they thought Brent was one of the humans from the surface sure. that the apes basically controlled or used for target practice. He wasn't really one of them. No, not at all. I was thinking about in terms of Brent's point of view. Right. It's like there are more people. They're communicating with me at least. I'm not seeing their lips move, but but no. There's no hope here. So once they finally start talking – they're telling him that they're telepathic. They can imprint visions in their whoever they once mind, uh, pain or whatever, but they're not actually causing any issues. They don't see themselves as the ones, the aggressors. They see themselves as we're just giving you this idea, this pain or whatever, this idea of pain. We're not really hurting you. Right. But they want to know about the apes. They want to know, do the apes want to be friends? Do the apes want war? What's going on? Do they want a banana? Yeah. <laughs> That's the third movie. That's all oh, I'm going to say. Oh, <laughs> you spoiled it for myself. <laughs> but yes, they're wanting to know what the apes are doing, and they end up finding out through Brent that the apes are marching towards them in the Forbidden Zone. And then they have Nova show back, and they bring Nova in. You know, you, these people have already been creepy enough. But now they bring Nova in and Brent is like, are you guys going to hurt her? It's like, no, but you are. That was creepy. I mean, he's already now. Now you know why he tried to drown her early on. He's sort of kissing her, but he's also choking her at the same time. And that was a powerful scene for me. Oh, it's, it's amazing. There are things happening in this movie that, I mean, these are not safe choices. There are some very dangerous choices being made here, and to have Brent basically choking her out, I mean, it's it's intense. I feel like in Planet of the Apes, a lot of the intense, like, oh, my God, moments involved Heston interacting with the apes. It was stuff the apes were doing, like, oh, wow, my mind is getting blown again. I feel like in this movie, a lot of the oh, my God, moments come from the human scenes and what they're making Brent do. And when the mutants show up, the humans show up at the end. It's like, whoa, mind blown again. It's nice. And I really enjoyed it. And I really responded to that. I could have watched this movie with just those guys with the apes at the beginning and the end. I, w I would have kind of liked to have seen if they could, have, again, had Heston for the whole movie. Oh, man. You know, follow him off into the Forbidden Zone. He gets captured by these people and the tortures. And, and I would like to have seen him in that part. I mean, Brent was good, but I think Heston could have taken it to another level. Well, the way he would have reacted to it would have been a little bit different. True. It would be a little bit more uh, fist raising and damn you. <laughs> then what did you think of when they go to the church service, you know, right after this, you see all of the, <laughs> all of the humans that were there, you know, they bring the bomb back out and they're, this is obviously Paul Dean's writing because we, we mentioned earlier on Tuesday, some of his poetry. And this is, they're praying to this bomb and the holy fallout and everything. It's <laughs> <laughs> But then what did you think when they revealed their true selves? Again, this was another moment where my brain was like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> this is supposed to be their talking apes moment from the first film. I could see that totally. Uh, it was, <laughs> again, something that I did not expect. You, you go into Planet of the Apes, even if you've never seen it, knowing the reveal knowing a few things here and there. There are some pleasant surprises, but overall, for me, I, I knew Planet of the Apes enough through pop culture that I kind of expected a lot of the big things. This one, no clue. <laughs> so when they're pulling their faces off, like, what, what, what is going on? Now I you, was Brent. I was Brent at that <laughs> moment. Like, whoa. Huh? <laughs> now, you said you watched the documentary. Did you see the mask that they had originally designed for this scene? So I had the, the little 20-minute documentary playing while I was taking care of a few chores this morning. So I didn't get to see everything on the screen that was happening. I, and I didn't have time to back it up because I needed to you know, record. So no, I didn't. Yeah, they had a lot more – looked more like they'd been burned. Oh, are you referring to – okay. I thought you meant the masks for the faces. No, no, no. no. You mean the underneath. Their true selves. 
yeah. So what I saw was the reference, like the Grey's Anatomy, with the veins and all that exposed. Right. Well, they originally had designed the the makeup department for these people to be look like they had been burned, radiation burned. And Ted Post saw these, and he was like, "That's not what I'm looking for." And he remembered back to anatomy classes and, and Grey's Anatomy, okay. seeing pictures of if you took the skin off. And you'd see the veins and everything. And then they redesigned the mask to look like that. But originally, okay. they were going to look like they had been burned. I think if they had looked like just radiation burns, it would have been a little more or a little less shocking. No, I think Ted Post was absolutely right to, oh, yeah. to go I think the, the this way he was. did. <laughs> Again, this movie blew my mind in so many different ways. It was nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought the mask... You see a couple scenes where there's the mutants are standing there and they're holding their masks in their hand. Those were really highly detailed masks that they had. They were. And, you know, we didn't talk about this previously, but the makeup in this movie was done by the same guy. Chambers came back and mm -hmm. he stayed with the, the franchise the entire time, didn't he? I believe so. Yes. So John Chambers, it is John, right? Yes. I'm so John sure. Chambers is the man who headed the makeup here. Did all the ape makeup, did the makeup here. I mean, it's spot on solid work. And I'd like to say, and maybe this is blasphemous, but I bought the ape masks more in this movie than the first film. I will agree with you on the primary actors. Yeah, on the primaries, for sure. Because in the first film, especially because I saw it on the big screen, I was able to see the double teeth. I was able to see the double lips. You know, you see the actor's mouth behind the ape's mouth. And in this one... Because I saw it so much in Planet, I think part of me was just kind of hyper aware of expecting to see that so I could just write it off. I didn't see it nearly as much. So I feel like they kind of worked that out. Or maybe it was just the way it was shot. Or the apes were on screen less. I don't know. I agree. The primary actors that are made up in both the mutants and the ape makeup are really, really well done. On par with the first one, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> there's a lot of extras. There's a lot of extras. And especially the scene that I really like with Ursus in the beginning of the film. There are some moments. They look like they just, they went down to Spencer's or wherever <laughs> and bought some ape masks. Somebody called Don Post and said, hey, you know those masks that we licensed <laughs> to you last Halloween? We need about 200 of them. Right. <laughs> they don't linger on them too much. And I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, obviously with the budget cut, they didn't have the money to do all of the extras like they did in the first movie. Well, they wouldn't have been a, a wise choice to do it anyway. I mean, they could get away with putting masks. You know, Scott and I used to do a zombie podcast, right? And the zombie podcast we did, we, we always talked about George Romero's movies and things like his Day of the Dead. If you watch movies like that, in the far, far background, those zombies are just wearing masks. I mean, it's just what you do, right? When you're making a movie and you have to have a bunch of different species or raced characters in the background, you put masks on them and just hope nobody notices. But I do feel like during the big scene you're talking about where Ursus is stirring up trouble, they spend a bit too long yes, on the crowds. Especially the orangutan. Yes. It's sad. It's too bad. Yeah. Now, the gorillas, I don't know if it's because they're fired up and there's movement so you don't get a chance to really look at them that good they're fine the chimpanzees are okay but you can see a little bit in them because they're not moving as much but it's the orangutan that's the worst and i wonder how much of that has to do with us being so connected to dr zayas true knowing that that makeup can move and look lifelike and you've just got this static shot of a bunch of them sitting around. And I can't remember if it was an orangutan scene or, or a chimpanzee scene, but there is one where it seems like there's one that's just taller than the rest, and he's wearing a bad mask. Yep. He stands out so badly. And you see that a little bit with the mutants, too. Especially in that the scene where you've got the entire congregation of the church and some of the ones in the background. Mm -hmm. But the primaries are really well done. It's impressive. And, again, when they started pulling their faces off, I was... <laughs> I wanted to make sure I didn't accidentally fall asleep and started dreaming this thing because I was watching it late at night, but <laughs> <laughs> I need to find a sound effect of bumper just to, to drop in there for the sound of my mind blowing, you know, find something from scanners, the sound effect from that. <laughs> there we go. 
But then after the church service, you almost forgot that um, Heston was in this film. Here he comes back into the into the scene because he'd been captured by the mutants early on in the film. In a sequence that we didn't talk about, walls of fire and cliff faces that aren't there and earthquakes. What? Lightning. I don't, well, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, part of me is thinking, okay, well, that's just the Forbidden Zone, whatever. That's what happens there. But why? <laughs> well, of course, we know now that it was all the mutants messing with people's brains, you know, their, their perception of reality. But still, yeah, so we do run into Taylor again, and they know each other. Taylor's like, and you're Brent. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, about the same time, we also get a scene with the, the ape army or the gorillas about ready to get to the area where they're in. So they do the one last shot with them trying to put these visions in their mind to stop them. Now, the one we just mentioned where we, with the beginning of the film with Nova and Taylor wasn't that impressive to me, especially when Taylor falls through the blue screen. Yeah, <laughs> true. But the scenes they put up with... The gorilla army are really impressive to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got the wall of fire, and then you have all of these gorillas on crucifixes upside down. <laughs> and they're not dead because they're all squirming and moaning, and it's freaking out all of the foot soldiers. They're just freaking out. And then their lawgiver shows up in this giant, looks like a 50-foot statue of a lawgiver shows up behind them. And Ursus is now getting kind of concerned, and he sees that this lawgiver, and he's crying. He starts crying blood. But just like Taylor at the beginning of the film, Isaias kind of sees through this that it's not real and goes through it. But that scene is very intense, especially when you think this is a G movie. It's impressive. The ratings board was so different back Well, I don't know how different, really. But, yeah, for this to pass... I guess if it were people that were upside down on the cruise, you know, it'd be a little bit different. Maybe that's how they got away with it. Yeah. Tracy told me, you know, she was watching it and she said, I know there was kids that had nightmares after seeing this scene. Oh, I'm sure. But then once Zayas shows them that it's just a vision and it's not real, he kind of takes lead over Ursus because I think Ursus was a little freaked out by what he saw. But Mm -hmm. the keeper of the faith, he realizes that, they're just messing with us now. They got to pay. He gets a backbone and he basically takes the lead and, and marches them on. Which was kind of nice to see because up until this point, I felt like Zayas chose to go along, not necessarily because he believed in what Ursus was doing, but more of a keeping society you know, together. I've got to be there for this. This is, you know. Yep. Yeah. Back inside the fallen New York, we get uh, Brent and Taylor are put in a cell together and what a cell with, with those <laughs> spikes on the bars. Again, the production design on this film is really cool. And we've got that African-American mutant that we saw earlier messing with Brent is in there. And he puts the thought in both of their of these two heads to kill each other. And it's mm-hmm. a brutal fight. I mean, they're, they're banging into the walls with each other. They're knocking. It's pretty impressive. And to the point where the mutant gives one of them a mace. Yeah. And they're swinging this mace around and pieces of plaster are coming off the wall when they hit it. It really felt like it had weight behind it. Mm-hmm. Very well done fight. Can we talk a little bit about the guy, the mutant that's initiating all of this? The actor, his name's Don Pedro Colley. He does speak a little bit in that little 20-minute documentary. Yes, he does. What a voice. He's got a great voice and... I mean, that he, I feel like maybe we were a little robbed a little bit because he doesn't speak very much at the beginning of his scenes because they're all talking telepathically. But what a voice and how impressive and intimidating was he? Oh, he, I mean, I knew he was bad news. Oh, he's great. And he's, he's still working today. You know, he was in Sugar Hill, that 1974 voodoo zombie movie that I like. He was in a Disney flick. Yep. Herbie rides again. Yeah, he was in THX 1138 for crying out loud. So but where, I mean, he's done a lot. But where I know him was from Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> he had a recurring character as Sheriff Little in one of the other counties that every once in a while got brought in. That's where I oh, remember yeah? him most. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> but no, I really liked him. He's really good. I do like him as well. 
the look on his face, I mean, he's got his eyes closed, but he's doing the, you know, the mental control, but this look of satisfaction on his face, like he's really enjoying his work. <laughs> yeah. We don't do violence. The hell you don't. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting off on this way too much to be like, I'm above all this now. Yep. But then, as we mentioned earlier, Nova comes in and has some dialogue, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> as she comes rushing in, because she sees Taylor for the first time since they were separated early in the film, and she scratches out, I think it's Taylor? Taylor? Something? Which throws the mutant's concentration off. And he <laughs> throws everybody <Yeah>. off. <laughs> The way they kill the uh, mutant guy is pretty brutal as well. <laughs> he had it coming. He did. He had it coming. So at this point, we get Brent. We've got Taylor. We've got Nova. They're forming a little commando unit. And I, I think they've pretty much decided at this point that screw them all. <laughs> that, that's the impression I'm getting. But then when the guerrilla soldier comes in and kills Nova, that just, it's over. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah, that, again, I <laughs> did not expect that. Did not expect that at all. And yeah, when that happens, see, I feel like Brent and Taylor, they think they're still going to get away. When Nova goes down, no. Yep. Taylor makes a choice. <laughs> and Brent's, I still think Brent's a little shocked by how he goes out, but uh, Taylor makes a choice. And this movie goes dark real fast. <laughs> <laughs> But then I suppose a movie in which people are worshiping the atom bomb as a god <laughs> and is pointed out earlier, the firing mechanism, it still works. Yep. Well, well, that and you know what's coming. And of course, Taylor knew exactly what it was, too, because he's like when um, Brent tells him about the bomb, was there any markings on it? No, there was just a couple of Greek letters uh, on the tail, Alpha and Omega. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> that's a doomsday. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know. When it all goes down, first of all, the woman mutant that was part of the original, like, I guess, five. Yes. That confronted Brent. She knows it's going down. She killed herself yeah. in a G-rated film. They find her body after she suicided. And they find some poison on the on the ground that she had swallowed. At first, I expected to, to see, like, a puddle of blood or whatever, the way she's hanging there with her hand hanging down. Yeah, I figured she slit her wrists. Right. Maybe that's just too violent. But wow, that happens. Nova gets killed. Brent gets killed. Well, you forget first, before Brent gets killed, the apes go in and they kill the leader, leader mutant, before he can set off the bomb. And this is one of my favorite scenes when Ursus just looks at it and Zaius, you know, says it's a bomb or something. And Ursus just starts shooting it <laughs> like that. That's the gorilla mentality. I can shoot anything away. Mm -hmm. And he just opens a clip out on this nuclear missile. <laughs> oh, Ursus. <laughs> but then they decide that they're going to lower it. <laughs> and they get this scene. Yeah. With, Let's put it away. Yeah, so they, they string these ropes up over the top of it. And they, the gorillas are climbing up the ropes and pulling it down. <laughs> it's like, you. Yeah. I think Zayas is aware of what's about to happen, yeah. but everybody else is like, oh, well, let's take it. Oh, come on. And then the, the smoke or the mist or whatever, the exhaust comes out. And I'm guessing it was steam because it who knows? burnt the, you know, there was something that was repelling the gorillas from it. But then we have one last shootout as uh, Brent and Taylor come into the cathedral. Of course, Brent first plays the organ with the butt of the rifle. <laughs> yeah. Everybody but Dr. Zayas gets shot. <laughs> pretty much pretty much and i was surprised at brent's death i really was because he takes a headshot doesn't yes he it? does right between the eyes oh man you know, before that taylor had already been shot taylor get not he wasn't killed but he was dying because um it it hit near his heart and went through his back so he knew yeah he he was done if i'm going out i'm taking these <laughs> damn dirty apes with me and, and he hits the bomb he get yep and cue Paul Freeze. Yeah. Black screen somewhere in space. The third planet from a bright star has gone dark. And that's it. It's credits. <laughs> so Paul Freeze's dialogue at the end, you know, 
before I started paying attention to some of these older movies, Paul Frees' voice to me was always comforting because I always had the Disney yep. you know, thing. But, you know, I watch movies like Burn, Witch, Burn, or in this. It's not a comforting voice anymore, man. Paul Frees is terrifying. Heston got his wish. He he died. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> He's not coming back for a sequel. Good God, man. One of the things I really like about this film is that they took the chance to do this. I know the the, the story of, of why it came out this way, because they wanted to kill off this franchise, but it still would have been a safe bet to just have the shootout at the end, and we have Taylor and Nova and Brent triumphantly coming out of the hole, hole in the ground, and music swells, and but they went dark. And I'm just impressed that they were able to take that chance that they, just, they took the chance to do it this way. And, and I kind of applaud them for that. I liked it. I don't know what that says about me, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it's going opposite of what most movies would have done. I think. Well, is that really the case? I mean, we are talking the seventies and there's something about 70s science fiction that has a dark cloud hanging over a lot of it. I almost feel like it wasn't until Star Wars came along that it started to brighten up again. Now, that said, I don't disagree with you because this movie goes much darker than Planet of the Apes did. Planet of the Apes reveals, oh, we're screwed. There's no way Taylor's getting home or whatever. He's been on Earth the whole time. This one, wow. It's risky. It's ballsy. It's dangerous. The chances they took, the choices they made. So It reminds me a little of another film that I enjoy it's from a little bit earlier called fail safe where they actually ended on nuclear explosions <laughs> and and okay and I, I do like that film because they took the chance to do it this way they didn't shy away they had the the balls to say this is what we're going to do we're going to kill everybody mm-hmm. i mean i'm going to go even earlier than that for i mean fail safe was what early 60s early 60s yeah so i'm going to go even earlier than that i'm a big fan of the 1959 film on the beach oh yeah another good which one. also it's the end. There's no getting out here. So it does have that Paul kind of hanging over it this whole time. I feel like in this one, it, it, it's one thing to just, you know, nuclear annihilation. But there's this shootout. Nova gets killed. Brent gets shot in the head. I mean, wow. <laughs> it's pretty bleak. How'd the movie do financially? Oh, it was a hit. Really? Yes. I mean, well, clearly enough to make more, but. Was there, I mean, are you aware, was there any backlash to the super dark ending? Not that I've read. I know it made, I want to say, four or five times its original budget, which for that time, it was huge. Total lifetime gross, according to Box Office Mojo, was nearly $19 million. On a $3 million budget. That's something. It was enough to the studio to say, we know you blew up the planet. But we want a sequel. What? <laughs> we want a sequel. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have your budget again. Now, we've said repeatedly, this is new uncharted territory for a franchise to make sequels and that sort of thing. Unfortunately, it kind of set the groundwork for a lot of how sequels work these days, where they do want another movie just as successful, but they don't want to spend nearly as much. Yep. Which to me is backward thinking. I don't understand that. I don't understand it now. I didn't understand it then. If a movie's making a ton of money, at least give them the same amount to start with for the next one. Especially if it's a tried and true formula or franchise piece at this point. Oh, I you know? I agree. You should take some of that money that you made from this first movie and, and reinvest it and make a, you know, it, I agree. At least the original budget. I think you should go more. What do I know? I, I don't make movies. <laughs> yeah, we just talk about <laughs> movies 50 years after they came out. So, <laughs> But then again, it's hard to argue with the data that you have, especially the Apes movies. They keep making money on smaller and smaller budgets, so obviously it works. Right. Well, my favorite sequels, when it comes to franchises, my favorite sequels are the ones that do take the chances and do get risky. The ones that just kind of rehash what happened before. And just give us kind of like basically a remake with a different character in the lead. Those are not the ones that resonate with me. The ones that really stick with me, the ones that I really enjoy, 
are the ones that take the chances. I'm even going to go out on a limb and say I really enjoy Back to the Future Part 2 for that reason because it is so different Mm -hmm. than what came before and what the next one was. Empire Strikes Back, Godfather Part 2. You know, these are movies that when I think about these franchises, they're the ones that I think, you know, that one really did something different. And I feel like I'm going to – well, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself because I haven't seen the other ones yet. But so far, this one did something so different that when I think Planet of the Apes, I think I may go to them blowing up the world at the end of the film before I go to the Statue of Liberty reveal in my brain. Just because – I mean I know the statue, you know, whatever. I mean it's it's fine, but they blew up the world, man. (laughs) They did it. They pulled the trigger. That's it. The end. The end, right? Yes. Until <laughs> how long did it take for the next one to go into production? Um, Pretty shortly afterwards, right? I think within the year. No Nova, no Brent, no Taylor. No Zayas. Really? Yep, he's done. Oh, nope. man. No Ursus. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> but we've got uh, a very famous actor coming that will be in the next movie. I know that Ricardo Maltobon <laughs> shows up in some of these. Is he the one? Yes. He shows up in the third one with his fine Corinthian leather. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> no, not really. But he's he's actually good. I, I enjoy his character quite a bit. What is the next one? Escape. Escape from Planet of the Apes. Which I guess he would want to do if some... <laughs> if it's going to blow up, yes. <laughs> if somebody, some human comes along and wants to blow up the world, you want to escape from it. I'm assuming the mutants don't show up again. That this was kind of their last hurrah. Yes, that is true. God, now I want to watch Escape from Planet of the Apes. I can't wait to talk to you about it. Does it go completely different as well? Yeah. And Tracy really likes this one. And she, in fact, wants to join us for that conversation. I was going to say, that's, that's one that we've talked about having her on for, right? Mm-hmm. So that'll be fun. She's like you. She's she's a big fan of Zira and Cornelius. They're adorable, for yep. crying out loud. They <laughs> really are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so 1971. So it came out the next year. Yeah. It was very quick. Weren't there some fake newspapers or something that came out that I sent you a link to and you're like, don't read ahead, you're going to spoil yes. it? Yes. Okay. I didn't. And I think I only knew about Ricardo Montalban because when I worked at a video store, I remember him being on a cover of one and thinking, hey, that's Khan. <laughs> Khan. Or the guy from Fantasy Island, <laughs> Mr. Rourke. The plane, the plane, the apes, the apes. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Hervé Villachez is not in Escape. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say he was. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> now, he was too busy off being knick-knack, well, a few years later. All right. So we will be doing Escape from Planet of the Apes here probably within the next few months. We'll record about it and talk about it here on the show if listeners want to continue to hear my journey through Apesville. And then, or even if they don't, it is my show. So, uh, <laughs> And then we've got uh, Conquest and Battle as well after that. And the TV series. And the TV series and the Tim Burton reboot. And Do we have to? No. <laughs> Charlton Heston is actually in that. I know, and so is um, Linda Harrison, isn't she? I believe she is. Like I know Heston cameo? is for sure. Yeah. I remember. I, I saw that. Yeah, I, I saw it in the theaters, too. And <laughs> You know what? What if we did this? Why don't we go ahead and say it on the show so it's set in stone? Once we get through the five films and talk a little bit about the TV show, at least, why don't we do a roundtable discussion with, well, maybe we'll have Tracy back on with you since she's a big fan of the third film and maybe one or two other people. And we'll just do a big Planet of the Apes roundtable where we talk a little bit about the remakes. I have not seen anything past the Tim Burton. Really? I have not seen the new ones. You know, I haven't seen the most recent new one, but the first one with James Franco, it wasn't terrible. And John Lithgow is actually in it and pretty good, I thought. I have them. I just haven't watched them. Well, let's plan to do that. Let's do a roundtable discussion uh, with some other people. We'll invite some guests on, and we'll talk about Planet, and we'll talk about some of the remakes and just overall the franchise. That sounds good. And don't forget that if you are in anywhere in the Indiana area and you want to see Planet of the Apes on the big screen, we talked about this on Tuesday, but October 9th and 10th is the Sci Fright Frenzy weekend at the Artcraft, and on Saturday night at uh, 7.30, they're going to show Planet of the Apes. Are you going to go to both days? Oh, yeah. We're going we're gonna to buy a ticket for the entire weekend, which, based on their past ones, is, is $25, and you get to see six movies. That's a deal. Yeah. And don't they do, like, a giveaway and some drawings? And it's, it's not just come see the movie. It's a show. Right. It's a show. The, what they'll do is the... 
at 7.30 on Friday night and 7.30 on Saturday night, uh, they'll have a little giveaway before that film. Uh, they also uh, bring up the person that came from the farthest away that night, and they do other little things like that. They also show cartoons before the films. They play the national anthem before the films. It's a fun experience. Uh, they've also, during these uh, weekend-long celebrations, they'll bring out uh, grills and they'll grill up food around the dinner time break so you don't have to go that far away to get your dinner. Right on. Well, that'll be fun. Keep us posted on that. And if there is anybody in the area, you should join Scott and Tracy for that. That sounds like a blast. I'd go if I was there. Yep. Godzilla, War of the Worlds, Gila, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Forbidden Planet, Planet of the Apes, and Night of the Living Dead. Well, if you can't wait until October to see Scott and Tracy at the screening at the Art Craft, you can always hear Scott as my co-host over on 1951 Down Place with Casey Criswell. And, of course, we mentioned at the very beginning of this a couple of days ago, Scott and Tracy are the head muckety-mucks at Disney Indiana, which has been going, what, on five, six years now? Uh, we started in 2008. That's seven years. Seven years and in, in, at the end of July. Wow. So my wife just walked into the room and went, damn. <laughs> <laughs> so DisneyIndiana.com to get your fill of Disney goodness from Scott and Tracy. You can find Scott on Down Place with me and we'll have him back to talk about the next one, Escape from Planet of the Apes. Scott, thank you for taking me on the Apes journey and being my guide. Well, I'm glad you really enjoyed this one. This was a lot of fun. Now get back to your Ursus costume. <laughs> You're going to need to wear something in October, right? That's right. All right. <laughs> If I haven't said it enough, I want to say it one more time. Big thanks to Scott Morris for joining me on this Planet of the Apes journey. I'm looking forward to the next film already, and it's killing me, man. I've got the Blu-ray sitting here. I could pop it into my Blu-ray player and watch it right now. But I want to wait until we have Scott and Tracy lined up to talk about the next film in the series. So we're going to make that happen in the near future. I, I can't wait. I'm ready to have my mind blown again. Such stories as H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea have challenged mankind. So today, man is successfully probing deep into the mysteries of the universe. Can he penetrate the greatest mystery of all, time itself? magic of George Pal and the fabulous production know-how of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer to catapult you through time into a world that is yet to be. Why is it that we usually ignore the fourth dimension? You, you see, we can move in the other three. As the doctor said, up, down, forwards, backwards, sideways. But when it comes to time, we are prisoners. Inventor Rod Taylor's breakthrough into the realm of the fourth dimension is defied by his friend Alan Young. If that machine can do what you say it can... Destroy it, George, before it destroys you. Every moment is a year, hurtling through the atomic wars of the future on an incredible excursion into the unknown. What are the people like? Ah, the shape of things to come. It's lovely Yvette Mimieu. And what happens when boy meets girl thousands of years hence? How do they wear their hair? Who? The women of your time. Up like that? Show me. Is this the human race of the future? Or is this the Morlocks, fiendish creatures who live in a weird underground world? And the Eloi, the tranquil sunshine people, who the Morlocks dominate and maintain like cattle, luring them below with the hypnotic wail of the sirens to feed upon them in cannibalistic horror. This episode's running a little bit long, so I want to go ahead and wrap up, but I have to tell you about our website first, 
because, well, that's what we do at the end of every episode of the podcast. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find links to everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. If you follow the links button in the links across the top of the page, you're going to find a link to Scott and Tracy's Disney Indiana. Elsewhere on the website, you click on songs. You're going to find every song that's appeared here on the show in the past, as well as a link to the band that provided that music. We have a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show financially. Your help in this way is greatly appreciated. And by becoming a patron, you can bag yourself some street rewards. So go check that out on Patreon. We have a link to our Facebook group where you can become a member of our Facebook community and chat it up with Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes and see exciting posts like the link that Stephen D. Sullivan posted to an eBay listing for a mask of Dracula from Dracula vs. Frankenstein. Yeah, I love that movie a lot more than I should. I know. I know. Our contact information is also on our website. You can call us at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or, like Chris Franklin did, you can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. A couple of days ago, I mentioned that it's been confirmed I will be a panelist at this year's H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, and I mentioned that Chris McMillan might be there. Well, he's also been confirmed as a panelist, so I can guarantee there will be some Monster Kid Radio recording happening somewhere at that festival. Somewhere at some point, Chris and I will sit down and chat. You hear that, Chris? I'm coming for you with my portable recorder. It's going to be a treat. If you're going to be in the area in October, look me up. In September is the Rose City Comic Con. I'm trying to get myself to that convention as a panelist as well. And then, of course, in November, the Living Dead Horror Convention here in Portland. There's a lot of great stuff happening here in the Pacific Northwest. I know there are listeners around the world of Monster Kid Radio, though, so every time I go to something like this, I'll be sure to bring my recorder and bring you some content from the show or festival floor. Of course, if you're not in the Pacific Northwest, but you are in Indiana, you can join Scott and Tracy at the Historic Artcraft Theater for their Sci-Fright Frenzy Movie Marathon, October 9th and 10th. I have a link in the show notes to the section of the Artcraft's website where they have announced the lineup. Scott's already mentioned it once, but I want to mention it again. Godzilla, War of the Worlds, Gila, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Forbidden Planet, Planet of the Apes, and Night of the Living Dead. That sounds like so much fun. I won't be able to make it, but if you're in the area, maybe you can. And hopefully, you can make it back here next week on Monster Kid Radio for episode 221. As has been typical lately, I've got a number of recordings in the digital hopper. Not sure what's going to happen next week. However, I can tell you, it will either be a conversation with Paul McComas and Greg Sterrett about their novel, Fit for a Frankenstein. I know we talked with Paul about this before, and Greg, but this is the first time I've had them on the show together. We're going to talk a little bit more about the novel as well as their future plans. Additionally, I have a recording with Ron Adams, the man behind the incredibly awesome Monster Bash. That'll be coming up. I also have a recording with Joe DeMuro, the director of Tales of Dracula. We talk about the movie, how it did at Monster Bash, and he and I count down our top three favorite monster mashup movies. One of those three things will be appearing on Monster Kid Radio next week. You'll just have to come back to find out what it is. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song When Johnny Comes Wreckin' Home. That belongs to the band The Ape Men. You can find out about the album Seven Plus Inches of Love over at their website at the-apemen.com or follow the link in the show notes. Either way, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everybody next week. <laughs>